As we continue in our time of worship, really our worship heightens in the attentive and humble hearing of the word. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair within reach. Definitely grab one and turn to Matthew. Matthew is towards the end of your Bible in the New Testament, after Malachi, before Mark, and Luke. Matthew chapter 9. We're back in Matthew. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book, taking each verse as it comes. Matthew chapter 9. Well, I recently heard someone ask a great question, a question about Christianity, an intriguing one. And the particular question is helpful because the way that you answer this question really reveals whether or not you understand Christianity, understand the most important thing in life that there is to understand, the most important truth for any human being. And the question goes like this, and think to yourself, how would you answer this? How would you answer this question? What is the greatest benefit that Christianity offers? What is the greatest good that Christianity brings, that Christianity does? How would you answer that question? Would you answer the question with, that, it, that it's the social benefits, the greatest good that Christianity has to offer? Maybe it's making good friends. Maybe you would answer it in that way. People who will, who will dive deep in friendships and provide a measure of self-actualization a sense of belonging. If your answer is cowboy hymns, the ushers tell me that a door is going to open underneath your chair and you're going to fall through it. What's the greatest good Christianity offers? Absolutely. Is it the benefits of filling my inner religious tank? I feel better. A more positive outlook on myself, my self-esteem and my life. Maybe benefits for my family and, and my kids. Maybe that's how you would, you would answer it. Well, this passage we're going to study tonight answers that preeminent question that we all must be able to answer. And maybe if you're new to Christianity, you, you would say there's no benefit to Christianity. Maybe that would be your answer. And we're glad you're here tonight. And I trust from God's word you'll be convinced otherwise as we look at the answer to this most important question. So with that, follow along as I read. I'm going to read Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8 from the Word of God. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. God's Word says, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know, so that you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, And he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up. 
and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. We've been out of the book of Matthew for a few weeks now, so a little reminder of what's going on here. Jesus, in Matthew 7, 5 through 7, preached the Sermon on the Mount and came down from uh, that hill and that event and is descended into the town of Galilee, the fishing village of, of, of Capernaum, I should say, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and was traveling around on the sea doing some incredible miracles. And he is coming back to Capernaum. Now, in that Sermon on the Mount, as this pertains to our, our study in Matthew 9, Christ really, he turns over, turns Judaism inside out. It was erroneous, a false religion. There is many errors. And he corrects the upside-down teachings of Judaism. For example, in, that, in the Sermon on the Mount, he corrects things. Judaism taught that sin was limited to external actions like murder and theft. Christ taught that sin actually t- was internal motivations, a matter of the heart. You could be guilty of sin before God from the heart. Judaism taught that God only accepts those who bring to God a nice, neat, self-made morality. But Christ corrected that God, who really, God accepts those who confess to God that they have only self-made sin and inward immorality. Judaism declared that God delights in those who trust in themselves as being upstanding and good people. Christ corrected that and taught God delights in those who mourn their sin and confess their sin to God and who delight in God's forgiveness, not their works. Judaism often practiced spiritual religious theatrics, which, were, which really taught that life, life is about appearing upright and upstanding and morally glamorous before other people. But Christ corrects this firmly, saying that what matters most is a heart that seeks to humbly love God from the unseen movements and the the motivations and the inclinations and desires. Judaism erroneously taught that we can get into heaven by our good works and a little help from God. And Christ taught, on, on the contrary, that we have only earned condemnation due to our imperfect works. And our only hope is forgiveness from God by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Christ taught these things with authority, really turning things upside down. At the end of the sermon, he holds himself up as the judge of all humanity. And so at this point, many might be questioning, who is this man? Who is this person that it claims to be the authority of all humanity? And so uh, Matthew 8 through 9, following the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, really really demonstrates the authority of Christ by his works. Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount demonstrated the authority of Christ by his words. Now Matthew 8 through 9, by his works. He will show by his works he has sovereign authority as God, the only God of the universe in whom forgiveness and grace is found. He backs up those words with these astonishing miracles showing that he has the authority over the physical realm and the spiritual realm, that he is God, that there is no other God. He comes with a mere touch in Matthew 8 and 9 instantaneously reversing the devastating damage of the fall, what happened in Genesis 3, that has snowballed into the life of every individual and will, resulting in death. And Christ is sort of pulling back the curtain, giving a preview of what heaven will be like, heaven for all 
who have bowed the knee in faith to Jesus Christ. So with that, let's move on in our study. The main idea of tonight is this. It's in your bulletin as well on the notes page there. Main idea of Matthew 9, 1 through 8 is this. Christ has demonstrated his deity and his sovereign authority over our physical damage, death, disease, everything that leads to death, so that we would put faith in him for our greater need related to our spiritual moral damage, our sin. Christ demonstrates his deity, that he is God, sovereign authority over our physical damage so that we would put faith in him for a greater need related to our spiritual moral damage. In our outline for this evening, we'll see four truths pertaining then to the question we asked at the beginning, Christianity's great benefit. Four truths pertaining to Christianity's great benefit. Number one is this. Right relationship with God, a fundamental truth of Christianity. Right relationship with God is by faith in Christ, not works. Right relationship with God is by faith in Christ, not works. A little bit of historical background to get into. Let's dive right into it. Look at verse 1 with me. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. So Christ is demonstrating his, his deity, that he is creator with these sign miracle after sign miracle. He's healing leprosy, raising the dead, controlling weather even. Incredible things. And now he turns to Capernaum, his own, his own city, to demonstrate this further for, a, for an interesting and a higher purpose, the greatest benefit of Christianity. Recall that Capernaum was somewhat of a hustling and a bustling first century fishing village at the time that lay situated on an international trade route. Really, it was a crossroads of the Roman Empire. So lots of travel coming through there. And then verse 2, they, notice, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Both Mark and Luke record this incredible historical event. So I'll pull a bit from, from their records. But we have a paralytic here now. Perhaps he was born this way, we don't know. Perhaps he became this way from polio or an injury that unplugged his feeling from his limbs. A devastating physical condition now and especially in the first century Middle East. And they were entirely dependent upon the compassion and the mercy of another for everything, for, for food, for clothing, to use the restroom, for travel, to absolutely everything. And in this culture, paralytics were often thought of as cursed by God, though the Bible does not teach that. In a specific sense, they were considered outcasts of society, sometimes subject, usually subject to a beggar's life. So the they, there are a they there in verse 2 who bring him. Who are the they and where was Christ when they brought the paralytic? Why did they bring him? Mark records the scene here. I'll put it up here, verse 4 of chapter 2. It says, Christ, excuse me, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let him down, let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. So he's in a house. The place is so crowded. The doorway was even packed. And so what do they say? Oh, well, we have other things to do. No, they, they go up on the roof. Quite a scene here. Now, how in the world did they get the paralyzed man on the roof? On a 412 or a 512 roof, as you roofers might be thinking, what did they do, and how did they dig a hole? Well, a little picture here 
of, uh, I don't know if you can see it very well, that's a typical first century uh, Palestinian home there, very common in this time. They had stairs externally going up uh, the top, to the top there. The roof was usually flat. They used the roof uh, to, drive, to drive fruit and other foods as a place for socializing and storage and so on. So this is your standard, standard working class home here. One small, uh, one room usually was, was, was the house with a doorway, uh, small by our standards. Um, the roof now, the roof was made out of, there would be cross beams that would go the length and extend out. I don't know if you can see them. They would stick out and extend a little bit uh, the, the length of, of the house. And then what they would do is take thatch and brush and, and kind of bind them together with mud. And, and that would be really the, the technology of the roofing in those days. Maybe some tiles in there. That was about as much as they had or could afford. And so picture this event. Who knows how many people jammed into this little stone sort of mud hut in a day before showering was popular. And you have God the Son preaching in there. So naturally it is crammed full. And then all of a sudden as Christ is preaching, you hear this stomping around on the mud roof. Remember, they didn't have these high-density noise-proof insulation type of deals. It was sticks and mud. So it's just thud, 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 thud. And then dust starts falling down on their heads. And then the dust turns to dirt clods falling down. And then they see a hand digging through. And then a little hole turns into a gaping passage big enough to get a stretcher through. And then the stretcher appears. If you're sitting in the room, you have no clue what's going on. You don't have this passage in your Bible yet. So the stretcher is coming down and not like on a nice, you know... ADA sort of electric lift, but a wobbly, uneven, risky, sort of controlled fall as a desperate act of raw hope in Christ. And he falls, landing in Christ's lap. Notice verse 2 in the middle there. Seeing their faith, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Notice Christ sees their faith, plural. He sees their faith. All five of the guys, the four plus the one probably. But he only addresses the paralyzed man singularly. Take courage, your son, your sins. And does that mean that someone can receive forgiveness through faith or the desires or actions of another without believing in Christ themselves? Does this mean, well, you know, as long as my wife or my, my parent has faith, I'll go to heaven that way. It does not mean that. We don't piggyback into right relationship with God through another, unless, of course, another is Christ. Scripture teaches we do our own believing. Christ is probably just addressing the paralyzed man because he's the one that falls down in the midst of everything. But all of his friends who carried him had faith as well, which is obvious by their actions. They go to Christ. So we have a situation here in which Christ says, this is authentic faith. This is saving faith. And so it behooves us to stop and say, okay, as we're seeing this so often through Matthew, and, and he keeps bringing this up on purpose. Matthew, Matthew is one of the great themes of the, this, this book is discipleship, is sincere discipleship and following Christ. He's emphasizing sincere faith, saving faith. So I want to stop and let's look at, what, let's look at some marks of saving faith 
as it's a dominant theme. Seven quick marks here of saving faith. Number one, and most importantly, is, is it's centered on Christ, number one. Saving faith always centers on Christ alone, a faith which is in the power and the person and the love of Christ. And these guys go straight to Christ because their faith is centered on him alone. And notice when they get to Christ, they don't start talking to him about their charitable deeds, what great people they are in their town, the nonprofits they participate in, the neat emotional experiences they have. They say none of that. That They don't say that because they're not thinking that Christ should give them the time of day for their works. They throw themselves completely on Christ because saving faith centers on Christ. Number one, number two, saving faith results in action. It results in action. And the action here is these guys, they make a beeline to Christ. They make a beeline. Not perfection in action, but action. They see their need. They don't sit in their homes and magically and wait for Christ to magically appear. They go to where he is, where he's gathered. Number three, saving faith is also persistent. Persistent, number three. The house is full. The doorway is blocked. That didn't stop them. All that meant was, well, it must be God's will that we ruin this guy's roof. It must be God's will. Is there a verse for that, that we can ruin his roof if we... uh, Because not going to Jesus was not an option. It was persistent. Saving faith, number four, is desperate. Saving faith is always desperate. Who knows how far his friends had to carry him? I mean, and they're not coming by car or electric power scooter or an ambulance. They tied the poor guy. They probably duct taped him to the pallet or something. Each guy took a corner and they're trotting in their sandals through first century dirt roads. They're desperate. The paralytic knew he had to have Christ. Saving faith is bold. It's determined. It's urgent about a need for Christ. It's raw. It's unscripted. Number four, number five, saving faith prioritizes Christ over custom. Prioritizes Christ over custom. Over cultural pressure. Sincere faith is more concerned about Christ than what my culture or my peers might think of me. And certainly that was the case here because they would not have made many friends. You're, up, you're interrupting our sermon. We're trying to listen to God here. Don't do that. That's, that's not kosher. And the Pharisees would not look upon this lightly Because, first of all, you have a paralytic, many of whom they thought were unclean, and so he's not supposed to come and associate with people. He's not acceptable among a rabbi. They're defying social custom, not because their goal is to defy social custom, but because they must have Christ. Christ is more important than culture or custom. Number five, number six, saving faith makes no appeal to deeds and makes no appeal to to my deeds. No appeal to my deeds for salvation, that is. We don't say, Jesus, look at my resume of morality for forgiveness. On the contrary, Jesus, wipe away my resume because I know that sin is even of the heart. So we don't appeal to our deeds. This paralytic, he does nothing but confess And his heart silently, which we'll see in a minute from the text, that he's sinful and he needs Christ. That he can't go to heaven unless he he puts faith in Jesus Christ. Christ declares him, by the way, 
forgiven. (laughs) Your sins are forgiven. And what he means by that, this is what he means by that. And, And the rabbis, the Pharisees there knew this. This is what he means. He means you, you, my paralytic friend, by me pronouncing forgiveness on you, it's as if you had always perfectly obeyed every commandment of God from your birth, from the heart, outward, externally, internally, and in your nature. You are righteous. That's what that means. By faith. He has absolute assurance he's going to heaven. Saving faith does not appeal to deeds. Number six and number seven, saving saving faith, number seven is simple. I want you to see this, it's simple. The paralytic, they don't make him recite some incantations. He doesn't have to go into a latticed four by eight by six structure to confess and say right words or rub a rosary. No, it's just an act of the heart, believing in Christ, that's it. There are no complex rituals, just belief, forgiveness. Number one, number two, then, by faith, Christ grants forgiveness for our sin. Sort of the other side of the coin of number one. By faith, Christ grants forgiveness for our sin. Look back at verse two. Jesus says to the paralytic, and the people crammed into the room are wondering, what in the world is this rabbi going to say to this kind of inappropriate act? He destroys a guy's roof, falls down in the midst of everybody, interrupts this teaching. What is he going to say? Verse two, look at, look at loving Jesus, the creator of the cosmos. Look what he says. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. I like that. This is not what they're expecting. Though it is exactly what the paralytic was hoping he would say. This is what the paralytic was wanting to hear. How do we know that? The paralytic wasn't first hoping to hear, oh, you can get up and walk now. That's not, that was not his main concern. Why? Because look back at the text. Christ says, take courage. The Greek there, it means to have confidence in the face of danger. To not be afraid. And then he follows it with, Christ says, your sins are forgiven. Do you see that there? He doesn't say, take courage, you'll walk soon. But have confidence in the face of danger. Your sins are forgiven. What kind of danger would he face? The danger that the paralytic knows that all humanity faces before we bow the knee in faith to Christ. Unforgiven sin before God, the judgment of God. The judgment of God. The way that we come out of judgment from God is by faith in Christ. Not our works, not self-flattering, subjective self-suppositions either. The paralytic is more aware and broken by his moral destitution than he is his physical destitution. But how could he sin? I mean, this guy can't even get up and walk. Isn't Jesus being kind of hard on him? He can't get it. He can't move around to sin because the paralytic knows sin is more about the heart, the desires, the thoughts, the motivations before God. And Christ, who is God, knows the heart. He has authority to forgive 
He sees fear. He sees his fear. And he sees his faith. So he forgives him. This is how it works. So he says, take courage, son or child. By faith in Christ, the paralytic for the first time becomes a child of God. In that instant, he goes from being a condemned criminal before God to a cherished child of God by faith. The physical healing really is incidental here. It doesn't seem to be the greatest thing on the paralytic's mind. Forgiveness was, hence Christ's response. And what did the paralytic do to get forgiveness? 1 John 1, 9. Let's put a verse with this. If we confess... The Greek word there means to have a sincere, sort of a sincere broken heart agreement with God about his verdict and his judgment on my sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is faithful. And he is just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The paralytic did that in the quietness of his heart. He sees God and he's struck by his sin. He's struck by his life of little respect for the holiness of God, little reverence of the greatness of God, little love for the compassion and the mercy and the person of God. He's struck by it all. And so he he confesses and Christ sees it. And he forgives him in an instant. Forgiven. The word, the Greek word forgiven, it carries the idea of to send away, to send something away. An important point about forgiveness is one Greek lexicon puts it is this, is that the focus of forgiveness is on the guilt of the wrongdoer, not upon the wrongdoing itself. Because the event of the wrongdoing cannot be undone. But the guilt resulting from such an event is pardoned, is pardoned. So the event of sin can't be wiped out, but the guilt and the condemnation of it is. Now, forgiveness is is often a misunderstood concept. So I want us to briefly look at three common errors of forgiveness. Three common, very common that I see regularly. And number one is this, that the myth that God's forgiveness, it's, it's a simple, small whim on God's part. It's just God just, he can just give a whim and just kind of throw, throw me some forgiveness. It's a whim decision God makes. But forgiveness is the most costly act in history. This is what we must know. A large part of history as we know it involves making forgiveness possible to humanity. How is that? How is that? Because it starts, forgiveness, understanding of forgiveness starts with three, knowing three things about God. That he is holy, just, and loving. You do not understand forgiveness if you don't start there. He is holy, just, and loving. He is holy. One violation of his moral standard, which is perfection in nature, thought, word, and deed, it's a, it's a breaking of his law. It's a breaking of his law. He's holy. And he's just. He's fair. He's a God of justice. He will not commit injustice, so he cannot and will not let what we suppose as big sins to go unpunished, and neither will he allow what we might suppose as small things to go unpunished. And the reason for that, again, is because he's fair. 
He's just, he's righteous. He will never administer, furthermore, too much or too little justice for violating his standard. It will always be, always be perfect. But this poses a problem for you and I, for you and me, if we are not God or if we have failed to be morally perfect. God is just. He only does what is fair. And so he must punish every one of our violations. And objectively speaking, that is good because that means he's a good God. Being good means dealing with what is contrary to good, which is what sin is. But subjectively, this we have a problem. We have innumerable violations before God. So God's justice demands our punishment. And of course, the severity of the punishment corresponds to the one against whom the violation is committed. God being the highest being of, of the universe. We might discern it is then the highest punishment. It's like if you're an NFL football player, if an NFL football player tackles another player when the play is dead or the clock is stopped, it's maybe a 15-yard penalty, maybe a little more. If that NFL, if that player tackles the referee, whether the play is going or not, it's going to be multiple games ejection because the penalty corresponds to the one violated, God. So the penalty is infinite. That's why eternal punishment That's where the concept comes from. Now, God is also loving. He is holy, he is just, and he is loving. So he doesn't leave us to what we deserve. He creates a way for a deserved sentence of condemnation to be removed, which we cannot remove. And, and this is what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is the removal of deserved punishment when the guilty party can do nothing to remove it themselves. That's forgiveness. It's the greatest benefit that Christianity and God offers the world. It's also the most costly act in history. Why? Again, because why is it? Because God is just. He is just. What does that have to do with it being the most costly event in history? Forgiveness? Because that's good and fine if God's going to remove our eternal punishment. But to where is he going to bring that eternal punishment? Where is he going to put it? Who will serve that justice? Something needs to happen to the sentence. And so the tension with forgiveness is not, well, why can't just God just lob it out to me whimsically? Why can't God just throw me out some forgiveness? It's not a big deal. That's not the tension. The tension is, why does God forgive any? Why does God forgive one person? That's that's the moral dilemma. That's the moral tension of the universe. Why Why does he and how does he forgive any? Why does he? Because he's loving. How? Because... The releasing of even one person from all their moral violations, it it almost seems capricious and careless and unjust of God. Where's their punishment going to go? You can't just let criminals off. 1 John 4.10 is the solution. And this is love. Tell us what love is, God. Not that we loved God and, oh, how we agree with you on that, God. We have not loved you. But that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is the answer. Propitiation is, solves the problem of forgiveness for a morally imperfect human being like you and me and everybody. Propitiation, it makes forgiveness possible. 
That word propitiation, it carries the idea of putting away punishment due from a higher authority so as to put the guilty party in favorable standing. It means putting away punishment that is due from a higher authority so as to put the guilty party in favorable standing. Christ is their propitiation. In his substitute death on the cross, it's the most important event of the universe. He puts away our punishment by coming up under it and being punished in our place. God's wrath is turned from us who deserve it to Christ who does not deserve it so that we could get what we do not deserve, and that is forgiveness. Forgiveness is never what is owed or deserved. Otherwise, it's not forgiveness. It is what is earned by a perfect, morally righteous party on behalf of the imperfect, morally unrighteous, guilty ones. This is the most important concept of Christianity. He puts away our punishment so as to put us in favorable standing if we put faith in Christ. And so in the cross, in the death of Christ, which is still future of this event, we see two things. Number one, God is not a capricious pushover who whimsically and unjustly tosses out forgiveness to the guilty. He dumps the entire punishment of the guilty on the cross, on Jesus. So God is just and holy. That's what we see at the cross. At the cross. And we see number two at the cross that God is extravagantly loving. He dumps my deserved punishment on his own son, which would otherwise take me and you an eternity in hell to serve. I can have that by simple faith in Christ. That's how forgiveness works. For that reason, when you forget, for that reason, forgiveness is not a whim. It's not something we can make demands on God, like, oh, God can just forgive me. Oh, may you, may you tremble, friend, if you ever think that. May you tremble at that. Yes, he can forgive, but bow low, friend. Bow low at the feet of Christ. Forgiveness is free for you, but it costs Jesus much. Forgiveness, then, is the greatest miracle. It's the greatest work of power, the greatest benefit. So every time we hear, read, think, or speak of forgiveness, let us reflect and bow low that it cost everything. It cost Christ much. Much. Second error of forgiveness, that it can be offered some other way than Christ. Well, generally, God's forgiving. I can... Ask him and he'll just forgive me. No, that's, I fear for you, friend, if that's your view. Oh, he is so forgiving, but it's got to come through Christ. Why is this? Because who in the world in history could do what Christ did to make forgiveness possible? Who is perfect by nature indeed? We not dare say ourselves. Who could serve our sentence by receiving the wrath of God and then rise from the dead? Not you or I. No one. Therefore, forgiveness cannot be, it is not available through anyone but Christ. Anyone. And so, instead of tragic responses like, well, why one way? Instead, let us tremble and hit the ground and say, there is a way. Praise God, there is a way. 
Third error, lastly, is that I can be forgiven after I die. I, I hear this one often. Well, uh, well, the argument goes, if this is all true of Christ, I'll see God after death and, and he'll, he's forgiving. I'll, I'll ask his forgiveness and I'll be good. Tragic error. With every sunset, breath, piece of food, drop of rain, and especially the words in the Bible of Christ, you have infinite evidence, friend, that this is true. And Hebrews 9.27 therefore says this, it is appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. Notice it doesn't say, and then comes, well, fourth, fifth, sixth chances to ask forgiveness. No, judgment right away. This is the way it is. And please don't flatter yourself with, with false mythical thoughts. Christ is so gracious to you today. Forgiveness through Christ is the greatest good. Number two. Number three. Questions about Christ's deity are okay, but skepticism can be an irresponsible hardness of heart. Questions about Christ's deity, it's fine. We should ask questions. But skepticism can be an irresponsible hardness of heart. Verse 3 through 5. Look at verse 3. And some of the scribes said to themselves, after Jesus pronounces forgiveness on the paralytic, this fellow blasphemes. Luke's account says the Pharisees were there. The scribes are supposed to be experts in Old Testament law, but sadly, by rejecting Christ, they missed the whole point of the law. But they know Leviticus 24, 16, that says death penalty under Mosaic law for, for covenant Israel, death penalty if you blaspheme God, which fast forward, which is why they do that to Christ. At least the Pharisees are consistent. But instead of thinking, hmm, okay, this guy's done quite a few miracles. He's incredibly loving, fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. Let's see about this. They have a total intellectual irresponsibility. Beware of that, by the way. Beware of, if you're the type of person that just continues to ask questions, what about this? What about this? What about this? There's so much objective evidence to bow the knee here. Much of rejecting after, after, after hearing the facts is not intellectual honesty. It's a suppression of the truth. But Christ, knowing that, look at verse 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing their thoughts, that's the second time, at least, in the passage that Jesus has read people's thoughts in the passage. The first was the paralytic's faith. His brokenness over his sin. Knowing their thoughts, he says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Christ calls them out in front of everyone, which they resented because they supposed themselves to be the religious leaders, the authorities. After all, they had tall hats and whatnot. But they were not. Christ says, Christ sees their thoughts. By the way, he says their thoughts are evil. Why are you thinking evil? What's an evil thought? Not believing Christ is who he says he is. He has authority to forgive our sins. And so Christ graciously goes, he condescends and goes along with him. Verse 5, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. And he does something he doesn't normally do here, namely perform a miraculous sign in response to the skepticism. Now, from a human standpoint and a skeptic standpoint, it is easier to say 
your sins are forgiven. Why? Because he can't see that. If you say, get up and walk, you got to see it. From a human standpoint, it's their evil standpoint. It's easier. So he's being very gracious and he says, okay, watch this. However, please don't miss this. It is much harder on an absolute standpoint to say your sins are forgiven. That is much more difficult. Why? Think back to the, think to the effort it takes Christ to heal paralysis or for that matter to create the universe. How much effort did Christ have to put into that? Let there be light. Let there be stars. There were. Let there be animals. Let there be oceans. There were. It takes him one word in one second to do that. So it will be with the paralysis. One word, one second, it's done. However, how much effort did Christ put in to accomplish forgiveness? How much effort? You'll never, friend, you nor I will ever, ever be able to understand a fraction, a millionth of a fraction of the effort Christ put in to accomplish forgiveness. How much effort does it take to come down out of heaven? God made a man, humble himself, and then every second of your life in thought and word and deed live up to God's infinitely holy standards and moral commands. How hard is that? How hard is that? And even on the cross, this is an effort that is unspeakable. Enduring the justice of God for every single one of our sins. So forgiveness is a far greater miracle, act of power than anything. Yet Christ speaks on their fallen level. And they knew the Messiah would come and demonstrate his identity by miraculous signs. Number three. Number four, then. Number four. Christ possesses the authority to forgive our sin. Christ possesses the authority to forgive our sin. This is an especially important point, not only for you skeptics, but those of you who doubt your salvation and lack assurance of your salvation, how important this point is is Christ possesses the authority. Look at verse 6. But so, but so that you may know. This is, an, this is a, a situation in which Christ wants to impart some knowledge. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stop there. The Son of Man, of course... This is a messianic title, a reference from the Old Testament, a passage in Daniel 7, verse 14 and 15 or so, which Christ often uses for himself. But, but notice, look, look into what he says and notice the purpose of the miracle, that you may know, that you may know something about me, that I have authority to forgive sins on earth, on earth, really just the comprehensiveness to the whole thing, which is a comfort Everywhere, every person, I have authority. But notice, the miracle is not an end in itself. Again, it's incidental. As great as it is to believe, it's, it's to point to this knowledge of Christ that we would believe he has the highest position of authority to forgive our sins. 
Recall that the New Testament word for miracle is often the word for signs. It's signs where a sign points to something else. You don't stop at a sign and cherish and worship and celebrate the sign. You go to what the sign points to. A sign distinguishes someone by making them known. Christ's signs made him known as our loving God and Savior. That's the purpose. So that you may know that I can forgive you. How would we know then? End of verse 6. He says to the paralytic, get up. Like he just fires off these commands. Get up, pick up your bed, go home. And he got up and went home. The power, the power of this miracle, though forgiveness is far greater, let's not miss it. I asked one of our resident MDs here, Kathy, that she would help me understand this. She said this. She said, the main component of the nervous system is the neuron, which is composed of a cell body and an axon. The axon is the long, thin filament that transmits electrical signals like, an, like a cord away from the cell body to another neuron, muscle fiber, and an end organ, and so on. The problem is that adults cannot regrow or repair neurons in the central nervous system, the brain, and the spinal cord. We have a fixed number of those neurons, and if they die or are damaged, we lose their function. With quadriplegia or paraplegia, the axons in the spinal cord are damaged and therefore lose the ability to transmit signals from the brain to the muscles and extremities. Scientists, she says, have been trying to find ways to enable axon regeneration and repair, but have not been successful. And so what Christ had to do in this miracle is, is get inside the spinal cord without surgery, Repair damaged axons, which transmit the electrical signal with no hands, something which medical science 20 centuries later still just doesn't have a clue how to do. And he does it with a word, and it takes him one second to do it. Get up. He's up. Second, Christ had to repair the significant atrophy of the muscles and the demineralization of the bones, which happens because of, of not using the limbs. And then he had to give the guy who probably hadn't walked in a long time, if ever, the ability to balance, stand, walk while carrying a pallet. This is unspeakable power. Unspeakable. I pray you'd worship Christ and bow to him. He's the sovereign Lord. And those of you with debilitating physical conditions or who will have, and you all will have them because you'll die, be encouraged here if you put your faith in Christ. Be encouraged here. This is a foretaste of the big show when Christ resurrects his people one day when he returns. In that day, all will be given brand new indestructible spinal cords and brains, eyes, hearts, lungs, livers, kidneys, limbs, every other body part that will not degrade for all eternity. This is what will happen. The time is not now. More important things are now. Forgiveness, but it will happen. But the great news of it all is that Christ forgives sins. And, and again, some of you who lack assurance, you question whether Christ can forgive your sin. You 
as everybody, as every Christian has, you lack assurance of your salvation. You wonder how can, maybe you're in a season, can, can I really know if I'm saved? And maybe you have not received Christ's forgiveness by faith like the paralytic, but friend, please know this. Christ has authority on earth to forgive sins. If you are still on earth, you qualify. Just believe that. Believe him. Believe that. It is that simple. A lack of assurance can be a disbelief in what Christ is saying here about his authority. Don't disbelieve him. Why would you do that? He made a paralytic walk. Believe him. Believe that he is willing and eager and able to forgive your sins, friend. You don't need to lack assurance. Stop looking at yourself and look at his authority and his ability and his love. Don't be on the opposite side of the spectrum as the Pharisees who are disbelieving. Wherever you are with Christ, do you think that your sin has more power to condemn you than the cross of Christ has to forgive you? Do you think that your sin is more potent to condemn you than God's grace is to save you? Away with such thoughts. You're not more powerful than God. You're not. Believe, friend. Believe on Christ today. Believe. The paralytic was made to stand upright and so can you. Verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were awestruck. The word literally means, it literally means they were afraid. They were afraid. It's the idea of, the word has the idea of fear and awe in response to something of extraordinary power in comparison to oneself. A feeling of frailty. A feeling of, of devastation, but kind of like in a good way. They were afraid. Who is this? This Jesus, he just speaks and spinal cords come back together. And then it says, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. What I've always wondered about that statement. My, my, my whole life is I've read these gospels. But the statement seems to contrast Christ in verse six, look back there so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's a claim to be God. It's a claim to be God. Only God can forgive sins. It, the, the conclusion of some of the crowds, they glorified God who had given such authority to men. It seems to contrast it. The crowds seem to marvel, but not that he's God. That, oh, he's just a mere man, and this is neat, this thing that they that he was able to do, this magic trick he was able to do. This is amazing. And further what's amazing is the hardness of the scribes that they do not erupt in repentance, that they do not hit the ground and bow to Christ's feet in brokenness and in repentance and saying, we believe now, we believe, you are God, you do have authority to forgive sins. Will you forgive me? It's a marvel that they don't erupt. A hard-hearted self-righteousness.
It's not those who talk about their sin and are broken over their sin that are self-righteous. It's those who do not erupt in repentance at the feet of Christ who are self-righteous. It's those who are offended at sin, the idea that they would be sinful or self-righteous. It's those who warm church pews, who take issue that the fact that they would have to bow at Christ, those are the self-righteous ones. Those are the self-righteous ones. And here's this man standing, leaping around. And some of you are just like the Pharisees. It's, it's amazing. It's tragic, really, is what it is. You've yet to bend the knee to Christ. Yes, with, with the fickle crowds, I mean, don't get me wrong, with the fickle crowds, you would say, sure, Jesus is quite something. I mean, he's a great prophet, even a savior for some. But in your heart of hearts, you, you haven't surrendered to Christ by faith. Oh, he's a neat guy, like these guys in verse 8. And it's not because there's no evidence in front of you. It's because you're proud and you're stubborn. You think, it, you think that you have a moral leg to stand on still. Yeah, you might say, I've sinned before, but I'm not really a sinner. And in that, you're self-righteous and deceived like the Pharisees. You're testing God. Perhaps you think, well, Christ is good for the paralytics of the world, for my kids, uh, for the wife, whatever, for other people. But you, your heart is as soft as granite. And Christ sees it. And it's offensive. And it's evil. Stop it with the pride. Stop with the hard-heartedness, friend. Humble yourself and come to Christ. He, he loves you. He will forgive you. The, the, the amazing thing about people like you and me and all of us who have been there is that he will forgive you. He forgives those type of people because he died on the cross. That's why. But you need to confess to God like the paralytic did. You need to come You need to come to God like the paralytic as a moral paralytic, which is what all humanity is. You must come to God confessing that you're a spiritual and a moral cripple or you may not come to God and go to heaven. God only saves moral paralytics. And until you're ready to declare that to God, that that's what you are, God still has to do some work on your heart, friend. He loves you. The point here of this event is not about God granting physical healing from physical paralysis, but spiritual healing from a moral paralysis. That's the, that's the issue here. That is the miracle, the miracle of making a moral paralytic stand upright and right standing before God. The English reformers back in the day called this passage the perfect picture of justifying faith. The perfect picture of justifying faith. Why did they call this passage that? What they meant was that the physical miracle of right standing and healing is a perfect picture of the greater miracle that all humanity needs. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Where justifying comes from the most, one of the most important Christian words, justification, which means to be declared in the right as if I've always obeyed God perfectly though I do not have such a past, purely by faith in Jesus Christ, not my works. And it's a picture of that because we come, we come like the paralytic, as it were, unable to move and do anything for God. 
This is how all humanity must come. Declaring to God, God, I am a moral quadriplegic. I can do nothing for you. I can lay here morally. All my works are filthy rags. And Lord Jesus, in my heart of hearts, I put simple, desperate, saving faith in you. And I depend on your death on the cross, not my works and not my deeds to save me. Is that you tonight? If that's you, be assured, have full assurance that Christ has authority on earth to forgive you and to grant you right standing by your faith and to grant you permanent, permanent favor before holy God as a child of God, which can never be taken away. Put faith in Christ. Friend, here's the thing. Hell, the only difference between heaven and hell is not that hell will be occupied by sinners and heaven will not be occupied by sinners. That's not it at all. That's not, that's not it at all. Hell will be occupied by sinners without forgiveness and heaven will be occupied by sinners with forgiveness. Which are you? Hell will be occupied by moral, spiritual paralytics who rejected Christ's forgiveness. Heaven will be occupied by moral, spiritual paralytics who simply in faith received Christ's forgiveness. Which are you? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. That you would receive such as us. The church is a hospital for, for moral paralytics like us, Jesus. Let us not be deceived and think otherwise. Let us cast ourselves on your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you are God and that you have authority to forgive sins on earth, Lord. Let no one leave here, Lord, deceived. Let no one leave here unsaved. Let no one leave here with unforgiven sin, I beg you, Lord. Let us all cast ourselves on you, you who are compassionate and merciful. And this week, Lord, let us live lives that demonstrate we've received your forgiveness and let us speak that good news to the lost in Jesus' name.